When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You might actually be the most derivative one of all. I mean, Christ, the same house. Maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie. Never answer the... I'm bored. Wait! And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking impolite questions. We're talking, I just couldn't fix dinner. <laughs> and we're talking, I'm standing in front of Pam America, and the driver can't miss me, because I'm that evil. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking, I've had a very difficult fucking six months. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is filled with great one-liners, and they all come from one character. They sure as shit do. Love Miss Ganja. Hate that it takes her 40 minutes to show up. But um, yes, everyone, we are discussing Bill Gunn's iconic classic black exploitation horror film, Ganja and Hess. Mm -hmm. 50 years, Trace. 50 years. This was a first time watch for me. And I've got to say, Joe, mm -hmm. I've heard people talk about this movie. I, I don't think anything could have prepared me for what this movie was. It was a lot more dense than I was expecting walking into it. Mm hmm. Which is kind of wild, because when you watch it, it's sort of straightforward. Once you can kind of wrap your head around what the film is doing. It's just that Bill Gunn is very much an auteur. And he, yeah, in a way doesn't make it easy for us. Like he he deliberately wants to confuse us with some elliptical storytelling, but I think the film is really rich as a result. It absolutely is. I mean, even doing, I did more research for this than I've done on most of our recent episodes because, I mean, there's just so many academic readings of this. And I was like, well, shit, I didn't pick mm -hmm. that up at all. And it's, <laughs> it was fascinating reading all these different reads of this film because, God, there's so much going on. Yeah, a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, but okay, before we get any further, why don't we bring in our guest who's waiting in the wings? So, um, everyone, they are the host of Brother Ghoulish's Tomb, a horror podcast serving the hottest tea and horror suggestions with witty and insightful film reviews and news. You may also remember them from our episode on Candyman way back in 2021. Please welcome to the stage, Ryan Kenny. <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hello, Ryan. <laughs> welcome to Ganja and Hess. Wait, Krampus, is that you? Absolutely. Oh, God. I was like, wait, did I get the episode wrong? <laughs> I forgot he did that. <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, how you doing, Ryan? I'm doing really good. And I'm in an even better mood that we're going to be talking Ganja and Hess. That um, I know we mentioned Shrek briefly before coming on, but this has layers very similar to an ogre. So <laughs> to an onion. It feels, it feels apropos. <laughs> Oh, Ryan, how <laughs> dare you conflate Gotcha and Hess with... I mean, if anything, Shrek 2 is the better movie, but I digress. Uh, <laughs> so, everyone's okay. allowed to have their opinions. Uh, okay, you know what? Go back and watch them. I promise you, 2 is the good one. But... <laughs> uh, Ryan, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious. This was my first time watching this. J Joe, was this your first time watching this? This was my first time, yeah. Oh, my God. So, Ryan, had you seen this before? 
I had, but I hadn't like sat down and really tried to get sucked in like I did this time because I knew we were going to be discussing it. And mm. it is dense. It is very dense. I, you know, I, I messaged Joe about 20 minutes in and I was like, oof, I'm going to have to watch this again because I, I truthfully, <laughs> I, I, I know you said it was very straightforward, Joe, but to be honest, the first 20, 30 minutes of this movie, I, I was having trouble following it. And mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, that, that is it. I watched this movie twice. <laughs> well, the, and when I say that it's straightforward, I mean the narrative when you get to the end of the film, right? It's mm. about a guy who is a vampire. He meets a sexy lady after murdering her husband, turns her into a vampire. She ends up killing some dude. And then the original guy self-sacrifices. Like, if you just ask someone to give you what the plot of the film is, they would give you something similar to that. But mm. then you watch the film and visually it's way more complicated, way more dense. Like, and and I just love it. Like this film is such an enrapturing visual experience. Like the plot almost didn't, it didn't matter to me if it was relatively simple. It's like a vibe, right? I agree with that. Yes, it is. It's it's a total vibe. Like, and then there's so much of the storytelling, I think, that's embedded. And like, I know this sounds weird, but like the score, like mm-hmm. the way that they utilize like sounds and the music, that's another element to the story for me. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's something, too, because in my research, yeah, I was seeing because, I mean, the, the score was written and composed by Sam Wayman, uh, who I think also mm. has a small part in the film. He's Luther the Reverend. Gotcha. Oh. There you go. But a lot of it was like, yeah, the, the lyrics in the songs were very carefully written to match whatever uh, Gunn was trying to do in the film. And unfortunately for me, a lot of that went over my head because we talked about how music and me aren't always the best of friends because I typically listen to a melody or, or, or a beat or a tune. I don't hear lyrics in songs until about my 20th listen. So <laughs> any of that stuff went right over my head. Baby, you got to watch it with subtitles. Uh, I was watching it with subtitles uh, on my Amazon Prime Showtime subscription, but they weren't doing the, the lyrics. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah, I know. I'm like that too. Like, I don't know what... So first of all, I need closed captions on for everything i watch Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um if i don't i have no idea what they're saying and for music i don't even try to figure out what they're saying most of the time and it's led to some funny situations like um there was one (laughs) moment where me and my husband we were singing Aaliyah's are you that somebody and as we're singing it it's obvious we're both saying different lyrics and i'm like um which one of us is wrong and why is it you and then we looked up the lyrics and we were were both both wrong (laughs) (laughs) i think that's why i gravitate towards show tunes because to me like like broadway shows it's so much easier to pick up the the lyrics because they're enunciate so much whereas with (laughs) quote-unquote regular music it's not always the 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 priority right Oh, you know what? I said, are you that somebody? It was more than a woman. Let me get it right. Sorry. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that was important to fix right now, but <laughs> just get it right. But no, I, I'm trying to think of like, well, when is the last time we really, because I, I would consider this, it's black exploitation. you know, it's a horror film kind of, uh, but it's, it's also an art house film to me. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's part of the reason why I fought. Well, yeah, yeah, but but it did get it, well, you know, let's just go into it. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, in 1972, independent production company Kelly Jordan Enterprises approached Bill Gunn, a black artist known at the time as a playwright and stage director, uh, with the idea of making a quote-unquote black vampire film with a budget of $350,000. Ooh, quick sidebar. Bill Ooh. Gunn, a black gay man. Oh, shit, I did not know that. <laughs> Yeah, it's huge. 
that honestly kind of changes my perception of the entire movie because, I mean, look, we'll talk about it, but religion and church play a very primary part in this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing that was, I think, so exciting about this when I did start, like, digging into the tea after watching it again, mm-hmm. I also did not know this this was a black gay man. Mm-hmm. And I just love that we can just claim it as, like, a queer moment then. Yep. It really does contextualize certain themes in the film and certain scenes, too. And I know we're going to go through one by one, but that does make a huge difference into how some of these scenes are shot and how they um, how they can be read. Yeah, a hundred percent. Well, this film, of course, yes, will become Ganja and Hess. And though Gunn later told a friend, and I quote, The last thing I want to do is make a black vampire film. He accepted the project with the intention of using vampirism as a metaphor for addiction. And the producer's relative inexperience at filmmaking afforded him a high degree of creative control over the film. Um, that would be the last of his control. And <laughs> because when he got released, he would not have control. Mm. So... Because of this, though, because he got to do whatever the fuck he wanted, and clearly he did, um, Ganja and Hess was suppressed in the United States because it did not turn out to be the Hollywood genre film that Kelly Jordan had commissioned Gunn to make. They produced this film at a time when black exploitation movies like Shaft, uh, with super cops who were black repetitions of James Bond and Charles Bronson, played as blockbusters in black neighborhoods. Um, even though there's not really any inspiration here, Blackula was released uh, less than a year prior to uh, Ganja and Hess's can- premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. Mm-hmm. The producers wanted a film that would exploit black audiences, a black version of white vampire films. What they got instead was a film that violates conventional narrative devices such as beginning, middle, and end, and a clearly defined hero and heroine, and cause and effect. Therefore, it is not only difficult to summarize, but it's also not exactly a commercial enterprise. (laughs) Yeah, and what's funny is when I was like looking a bit, when it was at Cannes, they gave it like a standing um, ovation, mm-hmm. whereas yep. over here in the States, you know, it was just being destroyed by critics. And yep. it was just such a jarring experience. But, you know, Gunn definitely issued like some some statements just saying, look, you know, a lot of people haven't seen black people portrayed like this. And it's mm-hmm. everything that you're saying about everything y'all are touching on with the black exploitation. Like it was so big that those were the the type of depictions that they wanted. And so since he subverted that so much, it just set it up to be this big, you know, misunderstanding. Well, that's kind of something I was, maybe this is on me for not doing more research into black exploitation as a genre. Mm. But again, the word exploit to me has such a negative connotation. And it seems like there was like a divide, not only within the black community, but just within the regular, oh my God, the regular, that sounds terrible. Um, the non-black communities, uh, that some, sometimes it was, oh, you know, oh, we're emphasizing like horrible stereotypes um, about the black community. But then others were like, no, but this is good because we're getting the representation and visualization that we want that we haven't ever had in cinema before this decade. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it can be both. One of the important things to note about black exploitation is that there was often a lack of black creatives behind the camera. So like Mm. there might be a figurehead person who's either writing or maybe directing, but most often black exploitation was made by white people looking to capitalize on black dollars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so the exploitation comes from white people exploiting blackness for money. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's also plumbing, like, the kind of, like, lower standards of genre, right? Like, they're crime films, they're genre films, and so on. So I think part of the exploitation was that they were sensational, and they were, like, 
overdramatized. Overdramatized. No? Overdramatized. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, again, shocking no one. I don't have a lot of experience with uh, black exploitation. However, in back in my film school days, we did have like a week long segment on black exploitation, and so I had to watch Sweet Sweet Back's badass song, hmm. which. Which is one of the best ones, by the way. Well, because I think that's the main one that's given the honor of uh, inventing black exploitation as a genre. It's kind of the first one. I will say, if you watch it, uh, just content warning: there is a child <laughs> having sex with a prostitute in the first scene of that movie. <laughs> Jesus, oh boy! Well, it's Melvin Van Peebles playing Sweet Sweetback, but his son Mario Van Peebles plays his child version in the prologue, and so. It's again, it's weird because you have Melvin Van Peebles directing a scene in which his real life son is having sex with a prostitute. Oh, my God. But he was like 10 in the scene. Right. Anyway. Well, you know, Boosie's doing that nowadays. So, but <laughs> but it's, it's like y'all said, though, it does go both ways, though, because as bad as the black exploitation was for the things that it was sinning with, they said this in horror noir, it kind of like helped put a foot in the door so like right, even right. though it wasn't the best representation by any means it was starting to tip towards where we're trying to get to where it's like better representation and actually mm-hmm. seeing black people not just on the screen but also like behind the camera and like helping you know instill our narrative into the story that's being told well and it's comparable to what we're seeing with queer cinema right like yeah. you know it's not ju- we're not just getting these sad like aids stories of queer stories uh we're getting things outside of that because we have queer creators telling these stories now exactly Mm -hmm. exactly but um but yeah so filming for the film occurred at applebee farms uh in hudson new york and the brooklyn museum in new york city the film had its premiere in 1973 and as uh, ryan said it was selected for the critics week at the Cannes film festival that year uh kelly and jordan were discouraged by the poor box office numbers and unhappy with the film's unusual structure and style. So they took the film out of distribution and sold it to another company, Heritage Enterprises, which issued a, res- a rescored and drastically recut version under the title Blood Couple. So mm-hmm. the version that all of us should have watched is about an hour and 50 minutes long. Yep. The cut version is under 80 minutes long. Oh, boy. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, on a level, I can get it because it's like, yeah, this isn't exactly a commercial film that's going to really appeal to a wide, wide audience because of the way that it's shot and edited. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like, uh, you're destroying this movie. <laughs> oh, 100%. Yeah, like the creative vision of the film is the hour and 50 minute one that we mm-hmm. see. What's interesting about the Blood Couple draft is that it does feature alternative footage, so you can actually get a glimpse of other things that they shot for the production, hmm. but that Gunn ultimately decided made the story too obvious, and it wasn't what he wanted. Like, he wanted to make audiences work for it, which is why he deleted those scenes. Mm. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Well, okay, so so that version of the Blood Couple, yeah, you know, it was, it was disowned by Gunn. It was released on VHS under various titles. And despite Heritage Enterprises' compromised release, the original cut was donated to the Museum of Modern Art, uh, MoMA, whose screenings, according to writer Chris Fujiwara, helped build the film's reputation as a neglected classic of independent African-American cinema. And it was this version uh, that was restored for release by Kino Lorber through a restoration done by the Museum of Modern Art and support from the Film Foundation which utilized the best versions of surviving used 35mm prints of the complete version to create a remastered negative. And so, um, you know, the quality of the film, that I, at least the version I saw, isn't the best, but it's kind of one of those things where it's like, this is probably the best version of what they could have gotten. 
Hmm. Right. And let's bear in mind, this is a 50 year old movie. And some of the scenes like it was shot on 16 millimeter. Mm -hmm. So certain portions of it are naturally going to look a little bit more grainy because they sort of like blew it up and edited it in certain ways. But um, I ended up not watching this on physical media. But I do want to track that down because I found out it has an audio commentary by the cinematographer, uh, James Hinton. And apparently he just like spills all the secrets about like why he shot it in certain ways. Uh, Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, Well, uh, so funnily enough, though, the original version did. I mean, I know we said, you know, in the States it didn't do very well, but it did still receive many favorable reviews, mostly across the pond, though. You know, it did receive the Critics' Choice Prize at the aforementioned Cannes Film Festival. Um, But James Murray of the Amsterdam News hailed it as, and I quote, the most important black produced film since Sweet Sweetback's badass song. Um, James Monaco, too, describes the film as the great underground classic of black film and the most complicated, intriguing, subtle, sophisticated and passionate black film of the 70s. Hmm. Now, flip side of that, um, I did not know this. Spike Lee remade this film about nine years ago under the title The Sweet Blood of Jesus. And (laughs) The script is credited to both Lee and Gunn because the the film. So I did watch this. So I watched the original, and I was like, "Ooh, I I need to sit with that for a bit." <laughs> and then I watched Spike Lee's film. Then I went back and I rewatched the original. Um, I will right. say, Spike Lee's film got a mixed reception when it came out back in 2014. He got it made via Kickstarter because he knew that no studio would give him money to make this movie. Which is wild because we're talking about Spike fucking Lee. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Apparently, Steven Soderbergh kicked off the Kickstarter by giving him $10,000. So they made Mm -hmm. it on a budget of uh, $1.5 million. Filmed it in 16 days. And I will say, if you're curious, it's streaming on Tubi. It is essentially the same movie like and the reason that gun is co-credited as screenwriter is because lee uses a lot of the exact same dialogue um at times it's even a shot for shot remake hmm. the difference is so there are a couple changes you know they added an aids allegory there is 100 a lesbian sex scene um pre-murder hmm. but it's not it's all very linear it's so if you had trouble understanding the original film i actually would recommend checking out the remake because it's a very straightforward adaptation told linearly i would also argue that when you put them up against each other it makes the remake much less interesting when it's told so straightforwardly Hmm. yeah one of the other things that you were mentioning off mike traces that you found it a little bit cold yes so it it's one of those things where it almost seems like lee is so reverent to the material that it's it comes across as very clinical medical Mm. uh and there's not really a lot going on into it Uh, i do like the performances uh ganja is now a british woman but she's played by zara abrahams and she is good but she doesn't really exactly have the fire that marlene clark has in the original film uh but again I, i think it's an interesting experiment that weirdly enough would come out just a year after spike lee's old boy remake so he was clearly in remake Mm. mode at the time oh interesting oh my god also i forgot that he did an old boy remake and let us never speak of it again it's okay (laughs) the old boy remake is aggressively fine in the sense that it's not watered down it's basically the same movie but But... because of that it reeks of well why are we doing this Mm -hmm. yeah kind of like the the remake of goodnight mommy Oh, oh yes. God. <laughs> Folks, here's the thing. We are pro remake. It's just you got to have something to that vision. If you're literally just remaking a film from a different language in English, 
fuck yourself because I that agree. original is right there. Make people go and watch that. But you know what, though? I will take an American remake of an international film that does that. And at least because, again, the whole thing with Old Boy is like, you're like oh, they're going to they're going to remove the incest twist. And of course, they don't. So I would mm. rather have something like that than something like, say, the Inside remake that completely oh botches the ending and redoes. like It just deflates the entire thing. Yeah, yeah I I think it's to to Joe's point. It's it's one of those things where if you're taking this international film and remaking it in American, whatever, mm-hmm. it's just it's just <laughs> laziness for real. Because it's like people just don't want to read the closed captions. That's right. always what I suspect, especially in a case mm-hmm. like Good Night, Mommy, where this movie is not that old. It literally just came out, and even if. Some people are like, oh, well, it's getting close to that decade mark. If you go back and look at it, though, it's still shot as a modern film. Like, it mm-hmm. still holds up. Like, what reason did you have to retouch this film? Okay. Zero. Do a re-release. One question for both of you, and then we can move up, get back to the film. But <laughs> right. what about the case when the director of the original international film itself says, I want to yeah. remake this so Americans will, will watch it because they won't read my subtitles, as in Michael Haneke Michael and Haneke, the Funny yeah. Games remake? Um. I want to be careful, but I'm going to just say it anyway. Uh, arrest that person, then. Oh. <laughs> War crimes. That's yes. what we're saying. What, what's funny is, I actually... Okay, like, with the Funny Games movies, they are the exact same shot-for-shot <laughs> shot movie. Mm-hmm. I actually do prefer the American remake by a hair, because I like the performances more. Well, I think that's the difference, right? Is that if you are casting different people and letting them do different things with their performances, like I'm actually interested to go back and reevaluate Psycho, Gus Van Sant's film, Mm -hmm. because it's actually celebrating its 25th anniversary this year. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to see it and being completely just absolutely like, no, it's a no for me. (laughs) I don't know why we bothered. Hitchcock's is a masterpiece, blah, blah, blah. But I think there's something to be said when people let the performances do something a little differently. Like, I'm kind of okay with that. But I do think it is very weird when a director chooses to redo their own movie. Uh, Heineke's not the only one. There's a couple of others. But it's an interesting experiment. But that's what it always feels like. It's n- it's yeah. less art and more of an experiment, like a personal thing that they want to try. Which is funny because we're, we're recording this episode two days before Anthony de Blasi is releasing Malum, his mm. remake of his own film last shift which came out in nine years ago yeah (laughs) 10 years seems to be the sweet spot right yeah exactly um but i yeah i don't really have much other information than that i feel like we're gonna have a lot to talk about with the themes of this film so uh Mm -hmm. yeah okay so we open with a series of intertitles and i'm just gonna read them all because technically they spell out most of what you need to know about the film so we get Dr. Hesgreen, Doctor of Anthropology, Doctor of Geology. While studying the ancient black civilization of Murphia, P.S. fictional, was stabbed by a stranger three times, one for God, the Father, one for the Son, and one for the Holy Ghost, stabbed with a dagger, diseased from that ancient culture, whereupon he became addicted and could not die, nor could he be killed. And that pretty much sums up the first act of the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's just one of those things where I feel like I wasn't even mentally prepared to have, like, it's not even a huge amount of exposition. But reading that, it kind of overwhelmed me. And then we just go into the film and we're not even introduced to Dr. Hess Green immediately. Mm-hmm. We're introduced to other people. And 
immediately the film is very jarring. It's saying, you know, you're going to have to pay attention. You're going to have to process how things are speaking to each other between the editing and the way that it's shot. And like, there's a lot of things in this movie that don't actually have any importance or relevance to a traditional narrative. They're mm-hmm. in there because Gunn is just interested in them. Well, so let me bring in then my source, and this is going to be my main source for the entire recording today, but it is from an article called Ganja and Hess, Vampire, Sex, and Addictions. It was published in 1983, and it was written by Manthea Diawara and Phyllis Klopman. And they really talk about the narrative of the film specifically and what how Gunn goes against traditional Hollywood modes of editing and narrative to establish his points and his thesis. And so... They go through the list of the first 10 sequences of the film, you know, like like, like the title cards you just read. Um, mm-hmm. We're looking at a bunch of Greek statues. We have a church right. scene. Uh, we have the chauffeur driving green around town. They go through this whole list and they say an understanding of how these scenes relate to each other and to the rest of the film is crucial to the understanding of Ganja and Hess. Mm-hmm. The challenge Bill Gunn poses to the viewer is to infer which character has the narrative authority in each scene. Identifying the main narrators can thus help the audience grasp the ideological and aesthetic assumptions that underlie the film. As the mapping of the scene shows, our potential narrators here are the minister and Meta. Later on in the film, Ganja 2 will emerge as an important narrator. Our task is to analyze the kind of narration established by each character and to show whether or not the meaning each establishes is complementary or whether these meanings contradict or challenge each other. So with the first narrative, you know, we have the minister's narrative as as the most straightforward, almost documentarian style of the film before we switch over to Meta. Right. Yeah. So that's where we open the movie proper. I mean, as you mentioned, we get some statues and there is a lot of religious aspects of this, particularly embedded within the art that we see either at the museum or in Dr. Hess's home. Um, And we can try to unpack some of that. I'm not going to get all of it because a lot of it is deeply religious. Yes. A lot of it's about like fallen angels, if we're being honest. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. And again, that's where uh, uh, Gunn's identity as a queer man, I find just so fascinating, given how how much religion is in this movie and how big Mm -hmm. of a part it plays in Hess's arc. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I I definitely think, and like I said, some of the readings that I got into this, I'm pretty sure, like, some people may not agree. But what I get, or like from the beginning, when they say that stab three times in the name of the, the Father, mm-hmm. the Son, and the Holy Ghost and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Since the Mithrans are supposed to be like an ancient African tribe, but right. there's like that level of Christianity in it. It's giving that the Mithrians were probably colonized. And so, and this is just how I perceived it. And so when you think about like swords, right? Swords, knives, all that stuff, because they have hilts, they actually, they still are phallic, right? But they're they're Mm -hmm. kind of like crosses. And so it's interesting that something that would look like a crux or like a cross Mm -hmm. would penetrate the black body. And it would basically be in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And we think about colonization and the cost that it has to the identity of the Black person. And I think that just carries on. Like, every time I watch this film, I try to just add on to that because that's the way that I read that. I think that's why he opens the film with it. Because through colonization, that's where a lot of Black people have lost a lot of our identity over time because of colonization. 
Well, okay. So I'm glad you mentioned that. So, you know, uh, going with all the this uh, this medium and close-up shots of Western art, uh, Diawara and Klotman go on to say, you know, throughout the film, the framing juxtaposes objects of Western art against various pieces of African art from the museum mm-hmm. and from Hess Green's palatial home. In fact, the film manipulates many kinds of doubles, scenes that deliberately match other scenes, objects and gestures, and either repeat or contrast with elements of each other depicted in linear or circular relations. But then even connecting to that, Hess Green's very wealth and class position are vampiric. So this is really mm. in the metaphor that, mm. that, that Gunn is trying to get across. He lives a life completely separate from other black people, yet he yep. represents a success in white bourgeois materialist terms with an <laughs> estate. Yeah cars servants and clothes mm-hmm. his taste is impeccable his son one step further removed from black people has received the best private school education and the boy speaks french as easily in as france he's, yeah. <laughs> he's being educated in france <laughs> so in stark contrast to hess green and his chauffeur the preacher whose church we see immediately after we see the very white and cold western art hmm this is fascinating because the the main source that I'm going to be pulling from, Christopher Sievings, uh, he's actually written a book entirely on this film called Pleading the Blood, Bill Gunn's Ganja and Hess. It came out in 2022. And one of the things that he speculates is actually that the, like, he's actually pulling a lot from Gunn's personal artifacts, which I think were either donated to the MoMA or they were just, like, revealed when he died because... Shocking fact, like Gunn only made two feature films, essentially because this one failed and then he could never get another one. And then he died really shortly after this, like he dies in the 80s. And he ended up like basically bequeathing all of his like original screenplay. So this guy, Christopher Sieving, had access to all of the archives. So he's he's talking about like previous drafts of the screenplay and different things. But one of the things that Gunn wanted to sort of fixate on was the idea that black African culture was also here before Christianity, like it feeds into Christianity. Mm, so yeah. I think it's fascinating, Ryan, that you're suggesting that there is that relationship to colonization, because I think Gunn was trying to say, like, we came here first. <laughs> nice. I mean, the thing about it is, though, if we start to and trust me, I didn't study theology. So, I, you know, tiptoeing yeah. carefully here. But <laughs> mm-hmm. when we do look at for example, the very controversial documentary Zeitgeist, right? You see how there are older world religions that have played into Christianity that preceded. Mm-hmm. And um, and a lot of it drawing from the fact that, you know, a lot of the religions share the commonality of being like sun religions. And so, yeah, it makes sense that he's trying to say, you know, we came first. But the way that Christianity has changed over time it's automatically been seen through the lens of almost being predominantly white, despite right. the fact that there's like a controversial origin to that. And so even when you think about the Luther, like the guy um, who's in the church, right? I think he's a really fascinating narrator in this because mm-hmm. when it comes to the black community, there were very few opportunities for us to really make money for ourselves. And, you know, especially in a very racist environment. Mm-hmm. And so when it came to the church, barbershops, similar establishments like that, they became very important in the cornerstone of black communities because they were opportunities for people to become, you know, professionally supported by the community and also do something that is not going to be hurt by systemic racism. 
So, you know, the church does have like, cause I have like a weird relationship with the church, right? But this isn't therapy. Um, but, <laughs> but, but at the same token, like there has been some good that it has done for black families, which is why it's a complicated relationship, even well, though there's, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just saying when we get to the end of the 10 minute church sequence that leads to, uh, to, to Hess to die by suicide. Um, uh, mm-hmm. I, we have, I think we will have plenty to say about religious role in that. <laughs> But I think it's important, Ryan, you you mentioned the church as a site of community. And I think it's really fascinating that we not only open the movie there, but as you alluded to, Trace, Dr. Hess Green has no relationship to community. Like he Mm -hmm. lives by himself on a white block in an isolated mansion. So I think it's really interesting that this movie literally opens with a sense of, okay, here's all these people. They're so proud and like, they're engaging with one another. They've they found this thing that uplifts everybody. And Luther Williams, he's played by soul singer Sam Wayman, who does the soundtrack as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's the reverend of this church, but he's also Dr. Green's chauffeur, stableman, and handyman. Yes. So like, even though he's got this community, he actually has to work for this kind of like uppity privileged doctor in order to survive. Mm, that's a good point it's a good point and i mean well think about it this way right and this is why at the top of this i was saying it is interesting that bill gunn is a black gay man because that changes some of the way that i view some of yeah you know and this is an example of that so it's already alienating to have that level of wealth and mm-hmm. you know not being able to relate to people because of that then there's the layer of him being a black person And then you add in, um, and I'm not saying that these characters are queer because I don't know, but, you know, it's not uncommon that because of intersectionality, right, Mm -hmm. that someone, and I'm speaking from like my own experience, sometimes like growing up, I would feel like I'm not black enough to be in certain spaces, even though I'm a black person, because Mm -hmm. of how I present. And then Mm -hmm. I would feel in gay spaces like I was being, you know, basically suffering from like racism from people. So being in that intersectional place really sucked because you kind of feel isolated. You don't feel like you can fit anywhere. And mm-hmm. if you're in some place like L.A., I'm pretty sure that there's a bigger chance for you to connect. But if you're in like a smaller town, mm-hmm. you being a, an openly gay black person can really suck. And then when you right. add in other layers, you know, you know, in his case, it's wealth. But um, it can also be fat phobia, depending on like body standards and things that are going on. It's just so complicated. And I think that's what I like about horror, because when you put a label like vampirism, right, Mm -hmm, anyone can project onto that the thing that makes them feel other. And then it gives the story like a different view or like texture. I think particularly here, I mean, Dr. Hess chooses to live where he is, like, he has a certain level of wealth and privilege. But you're right, Ryan, he clearly either doesn't feel welcome in this community or you know he he maybe doesn't trust himself because he doesn't want to be around people for fear of biting them but that that vampirism is another othered quality yeah it's like that wall between like him and community which is basically what this the church seems to represent in this but Mm -hmm. it also gives him power like mm-hmm, a very specific type of power so not only is he rich now but he's also literally a powerful black man 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It I love I love when they take vampirism and put it next to power because this is gonna sound random, but vampires and uh, versus the Bronx did this, right? Oh Where, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like it, it's because like vampires by literally draining people to live, I mean, is that not the top uh, two or three percent? You know, like literally draining <laughs> the lower class so that they can be sustained. The weird thing about this film though is that like this is nineteen seventy-three, we've got a smart very wealthy, very, you know, privileged black man who's kind of like living a dream that a lot of black audiences would look at and say like, well, that's not my lived experience. And he's meant to be a villain, but I don't think he is like kind of, I think he's tortured. Like, I don't think he's happy. And I think that Dwayne Jones is giving a really complicated nuanced performance as Hess. But at the end of the day, like, this movie is really sensual and it's really emotional. Like it's, I don't know. I find something really compelling about Dr. Hess. And I think we're meant to think he's a bad guy because he's preying on members of his own community. He's choosing not Mm. to help and support them. But at the same time, I'm just like, I don't know. Go Dr. Hess. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. I mean, but that's, that's, you know, where the lines between villain and hero, like I don't even view anyone in this movie as that. These are just people to me. They are trying to survive, trying to get by. I mean, Hess doesn't choose to become a vampire. That that is thrust upon (laughs) him. That is true. Yeah. You know what's funny? I respect y'all opinions, but I think Ganja and Hess are both terrible ass people. <laughs> oh, I love Ganja so much. <laughs> I love them. Like, they're entertaining, but um, I like them in the same way that I like Jocelyn Hernandez. Like, I mm. understand that they're complicated. It's like you said, they, first of all, old boy did not ask to be a vampire. So you're right about that. <laughs> and mama is a little cheeky and that's cute. But there are other things that I'm sure we're going to get around to that really uh, reflect poorly on their characters. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. But I also view this as like, I mean, again, like I view this as people making decisions because they have to survive a certain way. And so and that's I will say, actually, that's something that Spike Lee's remake does have a conversation about is like what makes something a crime? It goes by the mm. standards of the majority opinion so and it's all subjective and so that's something that i do think is very fascinating that goes a little bit more in depth in the remake but um it ties into my view of ganja and hess in ganja and hess Hmm. okay well let's take note of that as we move through the film because i'm interested if there are certain things that are kind of deal breakers for people like (laughs) oh this action is unconscionable and i can't condone it yeah okay So we are hearing Reverend Luther Williams voiceover. He's giving us a little bit of background about the church, about his relationship to it. And then he introduces Dr. Hess Green before we even see him because he's the the handyman and the chauffeur. And then we get part one, victim. And we learn that the victim in question is Dr. Green. So he's an addict, not a criminal, Trace. Mm -hmm. He's addicted (laughs) to blood. Yes. Even though not yet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I think that was part of my confusion when I started the movie. I thought that the, the, the title card summary that we got was meant to be, oh, this happened before the movie starts. So I was trying to put that together as I was watching the first act of this. Yeah, this is this is non-linear storytelling. Mm-hmm. So Reverend Luther Williams is, he already knows that his boss is a vampire. We will see it, but it's not clear when the events that we're seeing, like when the transformation occurred. And I think that's part of the confusion of the film is like, we see him get stabbed at one point with this like ceremonial dagger. And we're like, 
is that the moment? Yes. When did this happen? Who is that guy? <laughs> it, it, it is meant to be that that is the thing. And that's something that Spike Lee makes more explicit in, in the in the remake. But yeah, so when he gets stabbed, it looked like a bone, like a bone shard to me personally. It is. But yep. yeah, yeah mm-hmm. but no, yeah, that's supposed to be when he turns is when he gets stabbed three times with that thing. Right. So Luther is giving us this voiceover. It's actually uh, from the sermon Bread of Life from the King James Bible. And we're seeing Hess walking around this Brooklyn Museum. This is when he's introduced to Jack Sargent, John Hoffmeister. Don't care too, too much about this character because he's really only there to introduce Dr. Green's new assistant, Mr. George Maida, who is played by the director, Bill Gunn. Okay, so... I'm going to pull back in Diawara and Klotman again. Meta, played by Gunn himself, is a black artist plagued by the problem of identity. He tells Green in a conversation that he is schizophrenic. Meta feels sometimes like a victim and sometimes like a murderer. Meta is literally the victim in the film. He is attacked by a vampire. But as a black artist in the United States, he is also a victim of the condition of racism. He cannot create from a sociological standpoint, without accusing white America. But he also cannot create without involving black America. Yeah, so so Meta is there to assist Dr. Green, for what we know. Uh, so we see him get delivered to this giant estate. Interesting that they were able to like use this apparently for a song because the the actual physical location had fallen into disrepair. So the mm. guy was like, "Cool." And then apparently, uh, people came and tried to like union bust them because they weren't <laughs> they weren't actually using unions on the production. And then when they found out it was a black production, they just fucked off. Oh shit! <laughs> so racism is also alive and well in the real life production of this film. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of good. It means that they didn't have to pay, so they were able to keep the budget low. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, interesting, if you're listening to the song that Wayman is singing as we're seeing the car driving up to the estate and stuff, he's actually talking about the lore of the Murthians, as well as their addiction to blood, and also how to kill them. So, again, we're getting information via song that will tell us about what's going to happen at the end of the movie. Hmm. Okay, so Mado arrives, he is fed, he tells this amusing story that I thought, Trace, you would get a kick out of. Oh, I I did. I sure did. (laughs) (laughs) It's about this director who accidentally uses the wrong word when he's filming in Amsterdam. So the word uh, cut is actually the sort of loose version of cunt in Amsterdam. (laughs) Yeah, the words are kind of the same thing. So every time he yells cut, they think he's yelling cunt. I'm sorry, he is yelling cunt. (laughs) basically (laughs) so then he just starts yelling cunt (laughs) so this is one of those sequences where i think if people are watching this movie and they're really trying to pay attention and sort of grasp the the intention or like why is this relevant this is going to become important this is one of those scenes where it's just an interesting anecdote it tells us things about who these characters are because gun is very interested in establishing these people as people not because it necessarily drives the plot yes this feels very um not really slice of life but in that same ballpark where it's like well okay we're just watching these two have a conversation but why and as you said not driving the plot but it's important to the characters themselves Mm mm-hmm Particularly if you watch uh, Hess in this sequence, he doesn't react at all. Like, Maida clearly delivers this punchline and waits for him to laugh, and Mm -hmm. Hess is like, I'm going to go to bed. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) 
So we do get a surreal dream or flashback to when Jack Sargent uh, introduced himself to Hess. This is when we see them wearing these kind of masquerade masks. And we're getting the introduction to a song called Bongoli Work Song, which was performed by Musée de l'Homme. It's basically the kind of chanting that you hear throughout the movie. And it's really associated with Hess's vampirism or moments of violence. Interesting. You know what I thought it was? I thought it was the bloodlust this whole time. I mean, yeah, yeah. I think that that also fits. But he doesn't crave blood yet. Oh, true. So I I don't agree with what you said, Trace. Mm-hmm. He's already a vampire at this point. Like mm-hmm. this dream tells us that this is the moment when he becomes a vampire because Jack Sargent stabs him with this. But that's happened like however many decades See, years that's, ago. And that's so interesting because again, you know, the opening scroll says he was stabbed by a stranger three times. And so I, I just read the stranger as Meta, especially since he does stab him three times. Well, Maida tries to kill him, but then he just revives because he's already a vampire. See, I thought that the stabbing turned him into a vampire. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) This is the moment where if uh, Bill Gunn was still with us, he'd twiddle the mustache like... (laughs) (laughs) These white bitches can't figure my movie out. Ha ha. So one of the other things that we do see in in this sequence is uh, we do see the Merthian Queen, who apparently in the screenplay is credited as Helgda, and she's played by Mabel King. So we will see her throughout the film kind of leading a procession of people across a field or sort of standing behind various important events and so on. And I'm sorry, but for anyone who doesn't know, Mabel King uh, is primarily known as Eveline from the film adaptation. And I actually think she originated the role in Broadway um, in The Wiz. Oh, oh my God, yes. How did I not know? <laughs> <laughs> I think I knew that she was like a really talented, uh, like singer. I, yes. Um, oh yeah. I'm sorry. She she originated the role of Eveline on Broadway, and then yeah, she reprised the role in Sydney LeMay's 1978 film adaptation with Diana Ross and Michael Jackson. Yes. Nice. <laughs> He's on down the road. <laughs> I used to. Oh my god, I love that damn movie. <laughs> So Hess wakes up with a start, and this is when he finds a drunk suicidal Maida sitting in a tree next to a noose. So, okay, continuing my statement from earlier, um, <laughs> where we're talking about, you know, Maida, he, he can't create an art without uh, accusing white America or involving black America. Mm-hmm. This scene is where this becomes clear, because he tells Green that he has tried not to involve him. The doctor replies that he would be impossible, since he is the only colored man in the area. Mm-hmm. Thus... Any black action always inevitably involves other blacks. The film emphasizes this when we see Green feed off the blood of black victims. Hmm. This to me was quite confronting because it acknowledges that Hess understands the kind of delicacy of his position. Like, he is educated, he's rich, he's entitled... Sorry, I'm saying entitled as though it's like a bad thing, but it's like he's worked to achieve a certain level of entitlement. Right. But he also very much acknowledges like, oh, I understand that racism exists. Like, I I haven't isolated myself on this compound and I'm pretending that the real world doesn't happen and it won't affect me. Like, he's very much aware I cannot have this dead man's body on here because it will only lead to trouble for me. Mm. Yeah, the thing is, the whole movie is just very surreal, and that yeah. moment is mm-hmm. is definitely a big 
expression of it. But it's just because like when you grow up black, like even when you amass all the success because of racism, they're always going to see you as one way. And so it's something you can't escape, even when you are as educated as he is and successful, unfortunately, in America. Mm-hmm. So is it just like, because uh, I guess, I don't know, maybe this is like a weird comparison, but it's like you're always going to be black in people's eyes because that's how they see you. Well, that would be the better comparison. Like, it would be more respectful to just be seen and not discriminated against. But usually, it, there's a saying for it, but I just can't say it because it's just literally so just disgusting. But it's literally mm. like, yeah, it's hard to explain, but you're always going to be seen as the negative stereotype right. versus like the the black person who worked for everything that he had and he you know he earned all of it but that's just how right. america is right like he has two fucking doctorates from what we know of that intro he's an anthropologist and a geologist like yeah dude's fucking put in the time well that's mm-hmm. systemic racism right like people see a black yes. a, a black person and they, they immediately their, their minds are just like oh that's that's bad in my mind like, but yeah. yeah or even assuming like you know that's a whole nother discussion. Y'all about to yeah. start me. <laughs> tell us about racism. <laughs> Ryan, welcome back. Can you tell us about racism? As I'm like rolling up my sleeves, I'm like, wait a minute. Ganja has, Ganja has. Start this TED talk, bitch. <laughs> but no, but I mean, because uh, uh, what we're hearing here, here in these readings, though, is that, yeah, it's, uh, it's also like there is racism. It's obviously part of this movie, but there's also a lot of black on black crime going on here because of racism. You see, and that's why back to the reading that <laughs> may not go anywhere throughout this. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that's why, you know, you get this knife plunged into you and then you're seeing it kind of play out and you're saying it's being interpreted as like black on black crime. But what is his identity in this moment? Like what what is going on with him? What does the vampirism like represent this poison mm-hmm. that Luther is narrating at the top of it? Mm-hmm. Well, but and, but Gunn said he wanted to make it about addiction, so that that is the it is a metaphor that's in there for vampirism. But as we've already discussed, there's multiple metaphors for vampirism in this. That's movie. true. That's true. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, because at the end of the day, Gunn wasn't interested in in the vampirism element. He was interested in blood, yeah. like blood specifically, and then the addiction that kind of comes from that. But when you think about blood. And we think of vampires, we always think of them as sort of connected, right? But I think in Gunn's mind, he was like, when I'm talking about blood, I'm also talking about black blood. Mm. Like, it's a very different kind of thing, because now we're suddenly talking about, yes, racism, yes, colonialism, yes, like slavery, and all of these like things that go with it. But at the end of the day, blood is still blood. Yeah, I I had to think of like an example to put it up against. So I think a good example of this is someone like P. Diddy, right? Mm-hmm. Because this is a, this is someone who is a very successful black person. Mm-hmm. And he's not exactly the same as Hess or anything, but stay with me for a second. Okay. When okay. people get into discussions around his success, they actually don't look at it through a positive lens. Nine times out of ten, they call him a capitalist and they say that he's gotten a lot of his wealth through draining other black people of their talent. Like, that's literally one of the archetypes that they put to P. Diddy. Because like the sampling, you mean? Not even the sampling, because that's more respectful. Like, okay. he would build teams and groups of people. He even had, like, a TV show doing it. And okay. when people would get out of their contracts, finally, they would reveal that these contracts were upside down. He was oh. literally just draining people and just using people up. And only now is it starting to get light shine on it. But, like, in the context of this film, right, I think that's, like, 
a potential for the type of character Hess could secretly be. And that's why when you said the name of that book, Joe, I wrote it down because I do want to read it. Mm-hmm. I find this film very fascinating. And I think that like Hess could be perceived as like the black person who is successful, but may not understand that he is draining people of their vitality because, right. you know, he's a capitalist or he um, can't really relate to the people that he's draining so he's just like it's what i need to do to stay alive and this is all through metaphor Mm -hmm. of course i don't think he's like picking up wallets you know from the corpses or nothing but you know (laughs) yeah i hope not (laughs) i mean when you look at the people that he goes after though they're often the people that he clearly perceives will either not be missed or they're not as valuable right i mean i think it does speak to the way he addresses meta He's not going after people who work for him on his uh, property, right? Because he knows that that'll be brought back to him. But he's also, like, not going after rich white people. Exactly. And, like, that's it. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, it's so funny that you're on this episode and you're on the Candyman episode, which is also a black (laughs) going after the black community. (laughs) But these are literally some of my favorite films because of the layers and, like, all the things that they could represent. And, like... Even with how you're describing, like, the uh, the relationship between Hess and Maida, and I'm going to come off of it after this because I don't want to keep ranting. I'm sorry. But, <laughs> Good. But, uh, but um, you know, no, I will come off of it. There will be an opportunity to bring it up later. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I think one of the most interesting things is how we look at Hess versus Maida. And one of the other pieces that we haven't really talked about is that Meta self-declares that he is struggling with mental illness. So, like, when he's up in this tree with a fucking noose hanging on one mm-hmm. half of this frame, mm-hmm. he talks about how he has attempted suicide before, and that he has this, as you said, Trace, like, almost schizophrenic interplay between one half of him would be the murderer and one half of him would be the victim. And that's why he stopped, is because he switched into the victim mode and he didn't finish what he was going to start and then we see him play this out against Hess when he attacks him he goes after him with an axe and he does end up stabbing him yes with this kind of bone dagger yeah and then that leads into one of the most horrific part of this film which is when he's bathing and then he proceeds to brush his teeth with the dirty bathwater. Oh my god, yes. I was I was a, I don't have any reading into that. I'm going to tell y'all right now. I was I was appalled. So it it wasn't even just first he dips his toothbrush in the water he uses. I I was like, "Oh, that's gross." And he's then, saving water. Mm-hmm. And, he's then, an environmentalist. Then he spits yes. it out into the bathtub and then he just scoops up water from the bath and switches his mouth with it. When I tell y'all, I audibly like made a sound of disgust <laughs> when this happened. <laughs> These are the things that Trace focuses on. That's, that, that's, that is the scariest thing in this movie. <laughs> no, I'm with oh. you, Trace. I, I could, oh my god, like I could, I could just taste the water, and that's well, not a good. That's not a good thing. <laughs> that's not a good thing. Well, what, okay, so how do you two feel about brushing your teeth or like shaving in the shower? Because it's kind of like, well, all the water's going to the same place. Is it just that he's been bathing in the water that's so gross to you too? Yes, his filth is literally <laughs> swishing around in the water. It's cloudy. <laughs> yeah, it's swill. Like, I mean, it was just in the crack of his behind. But, but wait, I'm and sorry. His also, and I don't, 
I don't shave or brush my teeth in the shower. I shave and brush my teeth at the fucking sink before I take the shower. <laughs> I'm just saying plenty of people do both of those things in the shower. Nevertheless, if you're drinking water from the shower, it's straight from the fucking shower head. <laughs> it's not in a, a tub full of dirty ass water. <laughs> yeah, it dirty shower's cool water. with me. The, the shower's cool, but the yeah. bath? Mm-hmm. No. no it's a whole different game and the thing right. is i'm having fun doing this right now but if someone said it to me at like a, a happy hour of course i'm i mean i'm not gonna be rude like i'm like oh okay but in my mind well, you're I'm gonna like, talk mm. shit about them behind their back <laughs> <laughs> oh absolutely <laughs> absolutely i'm like did, did you, you know here <laughs> <laughs> she gargles with yeah. her bath water like needless to say made it dies by suicide (laughs) shoots himself in the chest with a gun which wouldn't you want to shoot yourself in the head i feel like that would be the best way maybe he wanted to preserve his head for a funeral uh i don't think he was thinking about it because he's not well trace i just to me the the risk of surviving a gunshot to the chest is i I guess he hits his heart but still like Mm -hmm. at least with the head you know like okay i'm pretty much done Mm. I mean, like like Joe said, he ain't thinking about all that. This man literally <laughs> is, he's ricocheting between um, s- several extremes right now. Okay, so. but he's, as we have already established, he's thought about this and attempted this many, many times. I mean, probably not this exact thing. I, I, yeah, I'm that's sure. true. It's a different scenario. <laughs> it's like, uh, oh, I'm, I'm, okay. I mean, <laughs> this feels like a very stark reaction, right? Like, he thinks that he has murdered Hess in this moment, so he is beside himself goes in writes you know this poem to future black children which uh seeving suggests is actually gun's message to himself as a child because apparently he was actually very badly bullied at uh school mm. and so this idea that like your greatest achievement is actually to be endless like be creative and make something that lasts which is interesting considering what actually happens to gun just yeah. that yeah you're right I found the poem to be beautiful. I definitely felt the the heaviness of it. Like, it didn't feel like it was just for the movie at all. Like, I'm not surprised that, you know, this was a poem to himself. And that that is beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's sad, though. I mean, definitely, it's not like um upbeat or anything. But it's definitely no. honest. It's a very honest and, yeah, well, beautiful poem. Because y'all are mentioning that poem, I'll just bring in D.O.R. and Klopman one more time. Um, It says, in fact, the open letter that he reads to a quote-unquote black man attests to this. He tells the black man to stay away from philosophy and any kind of action so as to remain innocent like a flower. Mm -hmm. Truth and purity for Meta can only be found in death. With death, we can conquer time and action. For time is volatile and action is futile. Thus, Mm. part of Meta's art in the tradition of romantic nihilism, are his many abortive attempts at suicide, as well as his final one, which succeeds. Mm. Which is interesting, though, right? Like, there's a very significant moment of love between Ganja and Hess involving flowers later, Mm -hmm. but also Hess doesn't abide by those rules because he can't die. So his art and his livelihood is hypothetically endless, although he, too, will eventually die die by suicide in a way yep wow because of religion because he feels bad (laughs) (laughs) yeah basically he needed to embrace the darkness (laughs) so speaking of uh hess discovers his body immediately floor dives so that he can just gobble up all of this blood yeah there's something about the the paint color of the blood in the 70s that i'm just like oof i love it 
it always reminds me of Dawn of the Dead because I think that was one of the first big 70s horror films that I saw. Uh, folks, if you don't understand why it looks like this, it's because of censorship. They wanted to make it look different from how real blood looks because they didn't they didn't want to offend people. Okay. So oh. it was like all 70s movies have to have this paint blood. <laughs> I didn't know that. Well, I mean, that's not unlike um, the MPA rating system today, where it's like, oh, if, if the blood is not red, it won't contribute to an R rating. That's why mm-hmm. uh, the scene in Kill Bill, the Crazy 88 scene, is black and white, because if it was in color, it would have been NC-17 because of how much red blood there would have been on the floor. Yeah. And same with, like, creatures. That's why they often have green blood, blue blood, and yep. so on, because then it doesn't contribute to the rating. Uh, Sin City, that yellow bastard, a lot of his stuff, he's yellow, it helps with that, but also that's why a lot of it's in black and white. Mm-hmm. It's wild. It's like, uh, we all know what that know, is. It's still We're blood. not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So Hess ends up stumbling outside into this field and he does pray for Jesus. So again, we're we're getting this idea that he is remorseful and that he does want penance, like Christian fucking penance, apparently. And he begins to scream as a solar eclipse occurs. Mm-hmm. Mm. So we move into part two, which is called Survival. I love this sequence. Apparently, the critics thought that this was one of the best parts of the film (laughs) because they were not getting what Gunn was trying to do. Uh But they did find this clever. So Hess stages an explosion at a doctor's office so that he can steal blood. And this is all to the tune of Wayman's uh, song, You Gotta Learn, which we'll hear repeated in multiple different versions throughout the course of the film. Mm. Uh, Does the song have any significance to this scene in particular? Uh, I I think it's just it's meant to evoke a kind of playfulness. Mm, okay, yeah, yeah, because there's not really a lot of play. Like, there's not a lot of fun happening in this movie. <laughs> well, until uh, Ganja comes along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But <laughs> there we go. <laughs> but what I like about the him robbing the blood banks thing is that I saw Ganja and Hess after I had seen True Blood, and one of the oh, things okay. that I liked about True Blood um, around the time was the fact that you could just go get blood from like the local corner store or whatever. I thought it was right. really interesting. And looking at the fact that this film was made so long ago, it's really impressive to think about like vampirism and how it can be impacted by medical science around that time. Mm-hmm. It's really forward thinking. I, I I mean, just on a very simple level. Like I really liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So we move from here to the garden party, and this is where we are introduced to his teen son, Enrico, who is played by Enrico Fales. And when Hess sees everybody drinking, he thinks to himself, hmm, I might also like a drink. So he sneaks back to the house for a glass of blood. Yeah. I love this scene in part because this is a single long take. Apparently, James Hinton, he he had a background in photography as well as documentaries but he hadn't made Mm. fiction films so apparently gunn was like i believe in you you can do a bunch of stuff and in this (laughs) particular case he was like uh it's golden it's golden hour like the sun is setting i really want you to capture this in one long take go oh my god 
Wow. <laughs> James Hunter was like, I don't what? Okay, <laughs> I guess. It's the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> it's experimental. I I love the way that this film is shot and also edited. I think that's actually two of its strongest components. Like Gunn's writing is surprisingly pulled back. Like apparently he overwrote the screenplay and then he pulled most everything out of it because it was too expository or like it explained too much um so really the film i think is constructed in the way that hinton is shooting it and then uh the editing of victor konevsky who basically had free reign like gun would just say oh uh we're on the same page so i trust you and konevsky would just go off and like do whatever he wanted Hmm. Mm. also uh all of these people are black this was a nearly entirely black production which was Super fucking rare. It's at least at this time. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, the next scene that we see of Hess is when he goes to a dive bar in the city. This is when he is propositioned by Rose, a sex worker who is played by Candice Tarpley. And she and her pimp, who is played by Tommy Lane, end up... I, I don't know if they were going to fleece Hess or if they always plan like they were going to murder him or yeah. something, but they try to jump him and it doesn't go well for them because, of course, he's a vampire who can't be killed. <laughs> um, but we do end the scene with what Steven calls a bunch of subjective interludes. So it's just like a bunch of kind of random imagery and then Hess vomits into the toilet. Yeah, so this is one of the big diversions that Lee's remake takes. Um, Basically, after he, there's no pimp, after he kills the sex worker, Mm -hmm. he finds her HIV medication in the bathroom and freaks the fuck out. And he waits, he waits for her to get resurrected as a vampire, and then he leaves. But then there's a whole scene where he goes to the doctor to get his HIV test, and it turns out negative. Wait a Mm. minute. So when he gets the HIV test, he's, he's a vampire at that time in Lee's version still. Like he's, yes. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. So, Trace, one of the things that you said before we started recording is that you thought that Lee maybe missed the point by making some of this too obvious. Mm -hmm. And you push back. So uh, by all means. (laughs) Yeah. So when I said that Gunn almost overwrote it, he actually included a lot of these details. So apparently in the original screenplay for this scene, what Hess discovers is that these two were junkies. So he finds their drug paraphernalia and then he worries that he's going to get sick from it. So that's why you see him vomiting. But then he removed all of that or he didn't shoot it. And so we're meant to infer it's either he's remorseful or there's something else going on. But Gunn deliberately doesn't want us to know. So that's interesting, though. So even knowing that, we don't really know in the film that he doesn't find the drug paraphernalia. But it could be then because they are low class of a sort that their blood is bad and he doesn't like the taste of it. Potentially, yeah. This is part of the reason that I said that um, Ganja has are terrible ass people, and we can start with him now. Mm-hmm. Just the idea that you know he's just dispatching sex workers. Yep. Because he thinks that you know no one will miss them or whatever the case mm-hmm. may be. Like that's that's trash. But yeah, I also like that they took out the weird pieces of you know is this blood you know um, impacted by who I took it from? Like are they junkies right. or like in Lee's interpretation? do they have like some type of scd or something like just because Mm -hmm. like it distracts away from the main point for me so much like it just feels random i mean and this movie's already really surreal so for it to just like shoot out into him sitting in the lobby of like a clinic i'm like okay i can't i can't take this this is too much (laughs) what's interesting though because it makes me wonder if lee 
actually read that original mm. screenplay or these notes because uh, it sounds yeah. like trace some of the things you've described to me that happens in that film it seems like lee took note of what gun was intending and then he tries to make it more obvious yeah i think very it's much likely so. that that's ha- yeah because like i mean spike lee does his homework for sure so i can i can see that being the case like he knew the t yeah, I think at the end of the day, the, I mean, again, maybe it's a film that also requires a rewatch because, I mean, it's still a dense film just like this one. It's just told more straightforwardly. Mm. Right. I don't know. The execution left a bit more for me to be desired where I felt like it, the messaging was a bit confused. But mm-hmm. that's that's for another episode. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds like we could always revisit it if we oh, yeah. wanted to. It's, it, it's still queer. <laughs> there we go. Yes. So speaking of queer... A fucking icon is about to enter the movie because uh. we are 40 minutes in. It is part three, letting go. And we have Ganja, who is played by the one and fucking only Marlene Clark. Mm-hmm. This part was written for her by Gunn because he wanted to give her this plum roll. He only wanted her for this. Man, I will tell you, the second we hear, we hear her voice before we ever get to see her <laughs> on screen. Mm-hmm. The second she starts speaking, I was like, oh, there's the shot of energy I, I needed from this movie. <laughs> yeah, mm. I agree. Because as much as I love the film, she adds a nice pace to it. I'm oh, happy yeah. that she um, was definitely more upbeat and she helps yes. balance Hess, uh, Hess out a lot. Well, and so going back into like, you know, the three narratives, you know, we have, you know, we have Maida, we have the the, the, the the Reverend, and then we have Ganja here. So Diawara and Klotman continue the fact that Ganja is not a narrator. That her story is told and that she does not determine any narrational space can be seen from the way she's characterized when first introduced in the film. We see Ganja as a rude and uncouth woman who has no respect for Dr. Hess Green or his employees. <laughs> she's overbearing and even insulting to Hess's retainer and seems in no hurry to find her husband. When asked by Hess to state her real motive for coming to, the, to his estate, she replies, money. Money. <laughs> <laughs> she soon goes to bed with him, both on a verbal and visual level. The film never presents her subjectivity at this point, but rather it exploits a negative depiction of Ganja so as to present her from the minister's Christian moral point of view. Hmm. So this is interesting. Does the reading of ganja change at all if we know that gun is a gay black man man yes because <laughs> like I, I i do think that she's a fucking icon in this movie like is she a villain is she is she kind of awful yes but i have to think that you know she comes in not only does she provide this kind of boost of energy like you said ryan but Mm -hmm. like when we see her think of how she is introduced as you both said we don't see her we see her on the phone but we see glimpses of her so it's things like red lips and fingernails a first stoli black head wrap pearl necklace like she is another kind of like wealthy black femme icon and i have to wonder if gun was like i want to pay homage to like this gorgeous i mean he writes her as one of the most beautiful women that we have ever seen yeah well i'm sorry going back into this villain conversation though like we will get to it later when she gets her monologue about her mom and how like she was raised as a child you know she was an accident oh you mean the best fucking scene in the film the best part of the movie um which by the way is changed in the remake um which by the way was improv that is 
Well, it plays like that because she stumbles, yes. but but it feels natural. But you can tell, mm-hmm. like it comes across like that. So again, though, I, this is where we're getting into like what makes someone a villain. What is making them? What is a crime? Because everything that she does, I I can understand why she does what she does based on mm-hmm. what we know about her and her childhood and how she was raised, and yes. just being a black woman in 1970s America. Right. You know what the thing is. Even though I still feel like you know she's how a I feel about no no not, not, not that she's a villain per se but she is a terrible ass person it's 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 not you could be terrible and not necessarily a villain <laughs> I definitely feel like it's not she's not irredeemable and I love her being in the film I think okay. she's human and I think that's what I like about the characters in general in this movie mm-hmm. like she's not just prim and proper which i think would do a disservice to the character Mm. and also the representation that it holds like she's cheeky and interesting and fun and dynamic and just right you know aggressively fucking human and and i do love that for her but you know her talking to the the person helping them and stuff and you know she's giving him the sending him to the ringer you know i'm like okay 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 (laughs) ma'am that i think that was the one part of my okay miss ma'am but everything Mm -hmm. else is like (laughs) i definitely love love this character and you do have to have that type of grit to make it especially because like everyone's going to fucking try you already for you know like you said being a black woman in america and for her to be that affluent you can't be out here you know just letting people take advantage of you so she is a very realistic character to me right i like her a lot i like hess too but i like her more Oh yeah. yeah, she she because I also think you get more insight into Ganja as a character. Like there's a reason that in in all these readings that I've been pulling from, Hess is never a narrator in this film. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it almost feels like the story is happening to him, yes. and he's not as much of an active part of it like people are doing things and he has to react but he is a very stoic like i said earlier that that Dwayne jones is playing this in a particular way it's important to note that in his real life like gun he was actually not just an actor and like gun was not just a filmmaker he was also like a playwright and a writer mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Dwayne jones was also an academic he taught university courses so he was actually balancing this role and basically negotiating the success from Night of the Fucking gonna, Living Dead, know, which made right. him <laughs> the most, possibly the most significant black actor in horror. Yeah. Like, he was super uncomfortable with the popularity of that movie because he didn't want the spotlight. So I think he's playing Hess in a very, like, subdued fashion as a result. I think that's why when with the chapter names and stuff, the first one being called Victim, and then the last one being called letting go it's letting go of the victim mindset the feeling Mm. that everything is happening to you and like taking ownership and he did it in a way that is very you know we'll get to it when we get to it but you know i think that's part of the reason because he does feel very stoic and like the movie is happening to him yeah Mm -hmm. even though he is making choices that deeply affect other characters like say turning ganja into a vampire Well, but I think that's why that happens in this third part and why the third part is the longest of the movie. Like, Mm -hmm. there is no part four. This is the rest of the film. Girl, the the number of times I thought that I missed part four somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) How many parts are there? The way I stay missing the uh, part two cut card every time. I'm like, oh, we're in part it's three. It's so brief, okay. right? Yeah. yeah. This is not a Mike Flanagan six parts. Let's yeah. get to the overlook. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. So she calls. She basically says, I'm looking for my husband. And also, you're going to put me up. I'm at the airport. Send a fucking car. Also, let's fuck. 
Right. <laughs> Not just yet. Not just yet. Uh, it's pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I think she gets there. She, she makes herself come to about 30 minutes. And then she's like, all right, I'm good to go. <laughs> <laughs> Not I'm good to go. <laughs> like she's slapping her hands like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> well, I, I want to know. So we get a second sort of anecdotal. What the fuck is the point of this story? When she talks about how she got the pot from the guy who smuggled it up his butt out mm-hmm. of Mexico. Yes. And Seeving reads this as a similarity with her husband's story about the director who kept yelling the wrong word. Uh... So the fact that they were married, I think, is significant. But they both have this humorous episode involving an artist abroad. And they both try to pack this profane punchline into it. And Hess gives them nothing. He's not interested in this joke. So, you know, some people read this as Hess's anxiety about having another person in the house but specifically he's got the wife of the person whose body is in the freezer yeah so he's kind of like you may be funny but i can't do this right now well and this is because i mentioned earlier how you know uh, gun employs a lot of doubling in the film so that's what mm-hmm. this scene is it's a double of of yes. medicine mm-hmm. you know what i thought it was i thought it was he you know she smelled delectable to him or something because of the blood addiction oh for sure and i thought like he would just zone out at times because he's trying to focus on not harming her because he Mm -hmm. he does seem to be very into her very early on because she is so gritty and just funny and interesting and he's just like (laughs) oh man i don't want to kill her but she smells like a sirloin steak (laughs) yeah a hundred percent i mean because they start to make out right after this And then he has to flee so that he can drink blood in the attic. And then Mm -hmm. that's when she comes up to him and they fuck. Well, yeah, they they fuck once and then he goes and gets the blood and then she finds him. And he's like, "Okay, cool. I can fuck you again now. (laughs) So they fuck again. No, they they don't fuck the first time. They just make out. Uh, And and let me correct both of you. Okay, that wasn't fucking. That was lovemaking. It was very sensual. No one says lovemaking except for conservative Christians. (laughs) It was so funny. Uh, (laughs) When I first met my husband, I, I actually tried to use like make love as like as like, as, as an adjective as a verb. I'm sorry. Um, and he, the one time I said make love to me in bed, he literally looked at me and goes, "Get the fuck out." <laughs> Ari, no. <laughs> also, Ryan, if you're ever single, if if tragically something happens to your husband and you collect the insurance money, and you have to create like a plenty of fish or Tinder profile, you can be like. Does not uh, brush teeth in the bathtub, but <laughs> oh. does say makes make love. love. <laughs> I make, make love to me. Make love, to Pablo. Me. <laughs> Pablo and Isabella. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, I hate everything. But then, because then we have this amazing Lee funny breakfast scene. <laughs> Yes, yeah. So this is really where we're getting to see what Ganja is like around other people. And yes, she is giving it to Archie, who is played by Leonard Jackson, who apparently is a very accomplished like improv comedian in his own right. So there's been some speculation that the reason that Archie's head is lopped out of the frame for this entire sequence Mm -hmm. is because he was such a gifted comedic performer, he would have pulled focus from Ganja. Oh, that's funny. Um, also spike lee's remake no famous people in the movie except for the role of archie who is played by a pre-fame rami malik oh oh so he doesn't have a black butler he's Correct. just got a different ethnicity butler yeah and he does have a bit i want to say prominent i mean i'm can I, can I spoil it sure uh ganja kills him at the end of the movie oh, oh. 
Which is interesting because that's not who kills Archie in this movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so there's this funny bit. Ryan, I do love that you kept saying like, she's got grit. And I was like, that's grits. the joke in this sequence. She keeps asking for oh, grits. <laughs> my puns are accidental. I swear. <laughs> you need to double feature this with my cousin Vinny because both films feature very funny conversations about grits. I love my mm. cousin Vinny. So do I. It's so good. <laughs> it is. I, I I still have it on a freaking VHS from when I was a kid. Like I, yeah. Old what is a grit? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so uh, this is when Hess decides that he's going to go and leave, and Ganja implicitly states her desire to stay because she not only asks him about his thoughts on marriage, but also what he'd like for dinner, suggesting she will still be there when he gets back. <laughs> and then uh, he goes into town and he murders a woman and leaves the baby to presumably also die. That is y'all boy talking about he a good person and, so, and, and moving like this. Well, then you need to watch the remake because that's... <laughs> <laughs> because basically, yeah, cause every, everyone he bites comes back. So this woman does come back to oh. life. But what sends him into his tailspin of like, oh my God, I need to repent and go to church and shit, is that he <laughs> comes across her again in public on a public bench and she's cradling her dead baby. Oh mm-hmm. my god! Because she drained the baby, I'm assuming. Like, well, I I, th- I think what happens is when she was dead before she was resurrected, the baby died. Oh, right. okay, okay. So important to note that's in Gunn's original screenplay. There you go. I'm about there to say go. that actually. I mean, I'm happy it didn't happen because wow, so sad. But like, it's also it makes sense. I could see that mm-hmm. fitting in. It 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 makes sense because. It shows that there's consequences for your fucking actions. Well, right. and that might be the spelling it out more that that gum was trying to avoid, right? Oh, mm-hmm. true, true. I think it's also, it's the vampirism that he's not particularly interested in. Yeah, exactly. Because if in a way, if we knew that every person that they were biting comes back, it would spoil the frankly jarring and completely unexpected final scene of this fucking movie yeah (laughs) i was not prepared me neither i mean i love a full dong but jesus christ and we kind of get it too during um the bathtub teeth brushing scene yeah true Hmm? yeah Hmm? lots Hmm. of penis there we go i appreciate i appreciated it we all appreciate it So back at home, we have Archie and Ganja clashing over the wine. And I do want to pause before we get to the reveal of Maida's body down in the freezer. So I mentioned earlier that this film was almost entirely made by black creatives behind Mm -hmm. the scene, which was a rarity. But one of the other important things that this film does is it actually allows black people to be black on screen. Mm -hmm. So Hollywood at this time had a very standard way of depicting blackness which was to overlight it. So we didn't want particularly dark-skinned people to come off as black. We wanted to kind of even it out. We didn't want to make them black. So uh, interestingly enough, James Hinton, that's the cinematographer, he had a line because his assistant tried to light this differently or like color grade it. And he apparently, this was the only time he lost his shit on anybody the entire production. He said... If a person's skin is dark or black, let it go black. So if you if you pause this scene when it's just like this innocuous scene when Ganja's like, where's the wine? Tell me where the wine is. Right. Why won't you let me get the wine? They're in an all white kitchen. 
and you can very so clearly see just how dark skin like these people are fucking mm. black and they have been lit accordingly even in the breakfast scene too she points out how she puts on she wore a white outfit because she wore black when she got there and it's like well those are the two things that you have is black and white <laughs> no she has red too oh yeah i'm sorry she's red too i forgot about that because i wear for you <laughs> let, me t- let me tell you something i love that because colorism is a real thing and oh, sure. it, it leads to so much erasure of richer darker skin tones i love hearing that detail mm-hmm. and also like i've said it a couple of times before like this movie is really sensual and when we get mm-hmm. to the sex scene like the more sustained sex scene between ganja and richard the guy that she that she makes fuck guys with <laughs> Like, the way that that scene is shot feels like a fucking celebration of black beauty and bodies. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Uh, so before we get to that, we have to get to the discovery of her husband looking like an icicle in the freezer. Her scream's good, though. It is good, yeah. <laughs> so I, I love that he comes home, and obviously she's been too upset to make dinner, so she... Like the the framing, the staging of this sequence, we see Hess not paying attention to her reading her position between these two candelabras because the power goes out and she's just like staring daggers at him. And then she says, I know you killed my husband. Well, how how, how do you know that? Because I found his body in the freezer in the basement. <laughs> and Hess does not care like he as always does not react to this she gets up she leaves she comes back but then it leads us into the scene yeah so this is the scene apparently the only line that she was told so you know gun was like okay this is a story about your background it informs everything about how you approach this so I want to hear you pull something from because she was apparently trained like Clark was trained as a method actress but it's really important that she doesn't go histrionic here, right? Like, she's actually very calm and reserved about it. The one thing that she had to say was at the end of it was that's why everything she does, she does for Ganja. Uh, see, and again, this monologue gets, like, you understand her entire character from this. And as does Hess. So bringing back in Diawara and Klopman, it says... We are now seeing a new ganja. She is defying both Maida and the minister and tracing the trajectory of her own narration. As ganja puts aside the impact of Maida's death, the film allows her narrative to plead for our sympathy. She tells Hess her life story and talks about the unfair treatment she received from her mother. Unloved all her life, she decided to love and protect herself. While Maida's anecdote had no impact on Hess, Ganja's story moves him greatly. He falls in love with her, and they marry. Visually, the style changes from deep-focused long shots when Ganja is sitting at the end of the table during the dinner scene to medium close-ups, which imply more warmth and love. Mm. Yeah, I could imagine people watching this for the first time having a little bit of difficulty with this transition because... She finds out that her husband has been murdered by this man. (laughs) She gets married. And she gets really mad. And then all of a sudden, maybe a scene or two later, they're back to being fully in love and getting married. Like, it feels like a very speedy section. But also, it perfectly makes sense. Like, clearly, she didn't love her husband that much. Clearly, she's super infatuated with this new dude. But also, it's like, I got to look out for me first. Like, my husband is dead. So fucking what? Here's this guy. He's rich. I can make this work. I'm 100% with you. And this is one of the things where I'm like, oh, she's a terrible ass person. But but aside from that, <laughs> aside from that, t- just jokingly, like, 
I really do. I'm okay with how they handled it because I mm-hmm. think that the film would have been the same way I feel about if they would have went into Hess being like in a clinic, for example. I feel similarly to her finding out that her husband's um you know been killed and then her acting hysterically. I don't I don't want that mm-hmm. for this character. I was happy that she was just like I'm looking out for myself. This is based in where I'm at. And I also interpreted it as like, yeah, she just didn't really, she didn't really love him like that. Like this was a marriage of convenience probably. And Mm -hmm. when she was having with old boy, it was because she's like, okay, well, I don't know where this is going to go, but I'm having fun and you know, it's just never going to be. But in that moment that she realizes that they could have something special, she was invested in it. So it just, it didn't really seem that outlandish to me, even though it was like questionable. It's abrupt. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and. And so, Joe, because because you 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 know more about the the screenplay and the notes that Gunn took. So again, yeah, this mm-hmm. is another big change that Lee makes in his remake, where instead of being about her relationship with her mother and how her mother was emotionally abusive towards her, it was more so about how she learned as a young child how being black immediately made her different. And so her right. dad was like, you know, people will treat you like this because you're black. And she goes, well, that's not fair. And he goes, I know. So it's more about that specifically about her race in a white world, um, which mm. I it's different. Personally, I do find it a little bit less effective. It might be a combination of the subject matter and just the delivery in the in the film, but it doesn't right. match the emotionality of this scene in the original. Yeah, mm. yeah, because this is actually Clark pulling from real life memories. Like mm-hmm. her mother really did call her a slut and slap her. Apparently, Jesus. I don't know. I I just think that this it's wild to me that this is an unscripted piece. As you said, Trey, she does stumble over it, so you can see that she's kind of working through it, but. It's a perfect synthesis, I think, of what the movie is trying to accomplish, married with this fantastic performance. And then the way it's shot, it is so intimate because of the blackout and the candle lighting and this like medium close up shot. It's extra grainy, too. I think this is the grainiest scene, the grainiest looking scene in the film. Mm. Yeah, it just works. Yeah, just really, really works. works. (laughs) This is a great scene. It's a fantastic scene. So we transition, we're, we're back to You Gotta Learn as we see them sort of flitting in and out of the camera as they're, you know, throwing flowers at each other. And then we cut directly to this marriage ceremony. <laughs> uh, quick fun note, if you want to play Easter egg hunting, you can see the Murthian Queen standing in the background presiding mm-hmm. over this marriage ceremony. Eveline! Hmm? <laughs> Eveline. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, and then... And then apparently in the original screenplay, there's this whole section that night where Hess walks her through exactly what he does, where he's like, I need blood. This is why I killed your husband and blah, blah, blah. Gunn cuts all of that out. So we just have Ganja saying that she thinks he's a bit of a, like, he's a bit of a freak. Everybody's got something. So she just thinks that he has a sexual fetish. Oh. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> because everybody's got a thing. <laughs> hmm I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, everybody does often have a thing. Yeah. So his thing is that he really wants to be with her forever. So uh, then we get this kind of horrible sequence where he (laughs) murders her and then waits for her to be revived. And she tells him after, again, a kind of like fragmented series of different shots of her like running through the field in this white kind of wedding dress and falling and other things. Uh, She says, hey, I think I had a dream where you murdered me. Except it's all real. Yeah, (laughs) because she's a vampire now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
I was such a fan of how they did that part, by the way. I, I like that they didn't feed it to us, but it was just like scattered like that. It did make it a little mm-hmm. tricky at first to understand what was going on, but it, I don't know, it conveyed like a lot of emotion because of it. Like I felt. The, yeah, no, really this bad is when you, her. I mean, again, like, look, did, did I have the Wikipedia page for this up as I was watching the movie so I could make sure I was catching every like major plot beat? <laughs> yes. But even still, this scene is, it, it's, it's, it's more surreal than most of what has come before, which is really saying something. Yeah, yeah. I, I think if people aren't paying attention or if they're feeling a little bit lost, this is actually the section of the film where it will happen. Because I also got confused at this next part. So we see them arguing outside, but we're not hearing what they're saying because it's drowned out by non-diegetic music. And we've got a separate voiceover track of Hess talking about other things. But clearly he's elaborating like, hey, I murdered you and now you're a vampire. We're not <laughs> hearing any of that. and then. She doesn't believe him, so he stabs her with the <laughs> bone dagger. Jeez. And then he's like, oh, I'll just leave you upstairs to let you recuperate, and I'll give you a sleeping pill and a glass of cat's blood. <laughs> In my notes, I just put, so Gondra starts going through some shit. <laughs> like, I didn't know how else Basically. to explain this. <laughs> it's been a rough couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a very difficult fucking six months. <laughs> okay so we're really moving into the last part of the film here where we have a dinner sequence and again in the screenplay we've met this character richard who was played by richard harris before he is the person who runs a rec center we do get that kind of information but apart from that you'd be forgiven if you said who the fuck is this guy and why is he at dinner and why are they dressed like us characters Mm -hmm. so okay this is my final big change from the remake so we don't have this character in the remake um what we do have is hess's childhood sweetheart slash ex-girlfriend who comes over to for dinner with them and then he mm-hmm. leaves and Ganja right. seduces and fucks this woman before <laughs> strangling her. Okay. She's the body that's still alive out in the field. She's the woman that comes out of the water at the end of the movie. Okay. So they changed the gender. Yes, basically. Interesting. And this is the lesbian sex scene too? Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they fuck and then imme- and like uh, during the sex scene, the ex-girlfriend's like, choke me, choke me. And she does, but then she kills her. <laughs> oh, okay. Oops. Uh- whoopsie (laughs) but but there is a finger in to be done (laughs) oh no they showed you know what i don't know i I might just watch that movie just cut the no i'm saying go go watch i mean if you like ganjan hess go watch this remake to borrow from joe at the very worst it's an interesting experiment right yeah I mean, I love Spike Lee so much that I'm definitely going to watch it. But yeah, the lesbian scene, it feels like it was just put in for him and like, you know, straight guys mm. getting off because was this in the original screenplay that there was like a lesbian relationship of any sort, uh, any sort, the original one? No. So this this was always a male female partnering, but we did get a lot more of Richard. So we get a, a whole explanation of the backstory between him and Hess. And there's whole sequences of like the pre dinner conversation and that kind of stuff. Mm. Apparently, they did film it. But Richard Harris, the actor was a friend of guns and apparently not a very good actor. Like he was not oh. a professional. And he was very awkward. So the only parts they could really keep were the kind of physicality moments. So I think that's also why we get a lot of body adi adi slow dissolves during this lovemaking, but not a lot of dialogue. I think he has one line. 
I noticed that, and I, I mean, I was okay with it because he, you know, is beautiful. But That's yeah, hot. it it so definitely hot. stood <laughs> out. Oh, very much. So I was like, whoa. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so one one fun note, I was like, this is really weird. Like these bodies are super shiny, and I I wrote in my notes, glittery babies. That is real glitter. <laughs> Dunn fully was like, let's just get some glitter on these hot bodies as I film this sex scene, which to me was like, oh, yeah, he was a big old gay. Imagine trying to get all that glitter <laughs> off of your body. No. <laughs> it's giving that Stephanie Meyer totally ripped this movie off. <laughs> ah, glittery vampires. <laughs> And then the worst part is, is that you've got to take a bath to get it off, and then you're brushing your teeth in that glitter water. Oh my god! Oh that's no! Both you of made it the fuck worse. <laughs> <laughs> and that goes against the environmentalist boon because if you wash that down this the sink, true. that's terrible for the environment. Glitter so. is terrible for the environment. Yeah. Oh yeah. Did not so. know that, but I also don't use glitter very often or ever. So. <laughs> The worst is when you get a Christmas card and it's got glitter on it and then you open the envelope and you've just got glitter all over your fucking apartment. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh my God. I can't stand those damn glitter cards. Even the ones where it's like Mm-mm. just the lettering on the front. It just gets everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Like the pinnacle of bad people, there's like Nazis and then there's people who send glitter cards like <laughs> right below. Exactly. And then there's the people who brush their teeth in bath water. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, yes, the sex scene is hot. It goes on for quite some time. time. And oops, Ganja has accidentally killed this dude because she licked a blood scratch, activated the blood lust, and lo and behold, Richard is dead. This was hot, though. Oh, Mm -hmm. so hot. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Right. So we then get a full minute long, extreme long shot as they carry this dude's body through the field. And uh, then as we go to dump it, this is when Ganja says, no, I think he's still alive. And Hess just drags her away because he doesn't want to hear it. He's like, no, shut up, bitch. We're going home. <laughs> I think what I think what really sucks about it is he's clearly breathing. Like, if you look at the, it yeah, is no, he's breathing. <laughs> He's like, nah, you're tripping. I'm like, what? I guess we didn't comment much on vampire how this movie like changes vampire lore, but I do like that we mm-hmm. have vampires that can walk around in daylight. Oh yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. Stephanie Meyer. Yeah, and they don't have fangs. Like at one point when he's killing the sex worker and the pimp, we actually see that Hess has to use a device or something to draw blood. Well, I was actually okay. Y'all can stop me if this is not a good question to ask. I was going to say if maybe the reason that they, they, they don't burn up in the sun is because they are black vampires. No, that's a good question mm. to ask. I mean, it's why okay. in Octavia E. Butler's book, The Fledgling, her black vampires can walk in the sun because of melanin. Right. Interesting. So it's a it's a good question. I feel like that's one of those things where a future filmmaker could easily look at that and say, you know what? That's part of lore that's worth exploring in greater detail. Like, that is the genesis of a film right Ooh, there. Oh, I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that played into it quite a bit, to be for real, for real. Hmm. Cool. So speaking of vampirism, this is where we start to talk about what the solution for their problem could be. So we learned that Hess has been looking into potential options of how to die, and we learned that if the shadow of the cross falls across your heart, 
you will fall as long as you have worshipped God, because nothing can survive in the shadows. And cue a very long scene set in a church. Mm-hmm. Very long. Yes, scene. we have more or less a nine-minute climax that is entirely set within this church from the opening sequence. So we open with a woman played by Betty Barney, who is singing a gospel rendition of You Gotta Learn. And Luther is there. He's preaching and dancing. We should also note that Wayman is not a professional actor. He is a singer. And that's why he did the music for the film. He was also very uncomfortable doing this. So Gunn had to be like, you have a religious background. You know how to do this. Just trust your instincts. And then he rigged two cameras and let her rip. Wait, um, did they say why he was uncomfortable doing it? Is it because he thought it was blasphemous or was something different? No, he just, he was like, I'm not an actor. Oh. I'm not going to be good. I'm going to fuck up your movie because he knew that this was the most important scene, right? Like, you basically have to allow uh, Hess to pray and it's this moment that will lead to his salvation. And Wayman was like, uh, you're basically saying I'm the person who instigates the climax of your film. So I guess, okay, what do you think this film's beliefs or I guess the the mentality or messaging is behind religion? Or what is Gunn's ideas about religion? Because I I will confess, I I viewed this film as rather conservative until you told me he was a gay man. And then it kind of threw that all for a loop for me. I mean, we've clarified that you can be gay and religious. You don't always have to have a negative response to it. But yeah, I mean, this definitely gives off a a bit of a more traditional feel right like this idea that even the worst villains can be forgiven for their sins if they come back into the fold yeah well catholics just you know, ask for forgiveness and you're good we should note this is a pentecostal church i don't know if that makes a difference Ooh, uh, yeah yeah P- pentecostal is like like super like it's like evangelical it's like super 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 religious hmm I kind of feel like it's not really a window into how Gunn feels about religion because the characters probably believe, based on whatever world they're in, that if you go to the church and you're absolved of your sins, then there is a chance Mm -hmm. for your salvation and to to get better. And so many people in the world who end up resorting to the church, they do. it's very similar to people who go outside the church for a certain type of spiritual healing. It's not just mm-hmm. about the Christianity piece. It's about this right. idea that there's a hopelessness to some issues that we come in contact with. Mm-hmm. And when something like that happens, it makes sense that if a doctor can't fix it, who will? And when you think right. about the limited view of that, if you're literally going through something like vampirism and yeah. you've been raised in America, it makes sense that you would believe I need a spiritual healing of some sort. hmm that's why this scene has made me cry a few times because it's very emotional. Right. There's almost like you're submitting yourself, you're becoming like the lamb before the church so that they can lay hands on you and remove something. And in reality, we all know that, oh, well, I mean, we don't know because it's, you know, spiritual, I guess. But a lot of people would agree that there is kind of a problem in that. And that's where some churches go wrong and they go as far as trying to pray the gay away. Because yeah. they, they think that, oh, if we do this, that's what's going to happen. And I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because I don't want to be disrespectful to people who believe or anything. But right. um, I do want to say that that's kind of how I read it, that he was just in this broken place. He didn't want this anymore. And him submitting to the church and having them lay hands on him was just hope. Like a last resort. Yeah, like I just want to be removed and absolved of this. 
and mm. it just you know it really speaks volumes especially if this is written by a gay man like that's yeah you know it speaks volumes mm-hmm. so what do you two make of the murthian backstory of this then like are they the villains since they're the ones who had this poison dagger that created the vampirism because that's where i think my discomfort lies mm-hmm. is if gun's intention is to really talk about there was religion and there was religiosity before catholicism and if we trace that back to colonialism are we then saying that the black people were the bad guys like because what? they created all of this because i don't like that i now once again these are just my musings now i think mm-hmm. that like there's this book I read once called um, 2000 Seasons by Ayikwe Arma. And it's talking about how there were people who were in Africa and around the time that people were coming over into certain villages and stuff, part mm-hmm. of what they would do is they would grab a few people, but they would grab these people and they would refer to them as zombies because they would basically right. work for the white man to their own detriment and you saw some of this in the transatlantic uh slave trade because oftentimes when people would show up sometimes people were uh, who were african were selling their people into slavery Mm -hmm. without having a full idea or scope of what was going on and so it's a very complicated discussion that i'm not you know educated enough to speak to but i will say that that's why my read into it is that luther's perspective of this sword being plunged into the black body as um a symbol of religiosity from a christian standpoint is Mm -hmm. about colonialism and about the removal of our identity as black people in the process and so sometimes these things can get conflated because if he's going to the church everyone who's in this world doesn't think the same thing they don't see things the same way so him submitting to the process, like I said, I think is just based in hopelessness and wanting to be washed away of his sin without realizing that the carrier for this quote unquote disease is white ideals that are apart from his own identity. I don't think that it's just everything that's part of Christianity or white culture is bad per se, but I do mm-hmm. think the the pieces of it that have been weaponized, um, because sometimes when people will go on these re- uh, religious pilgrimages or whatever they're called they're doing it in the name of god or whatever the case may be like the knights templar and all these other people but that depends on who's telling the story because the people who lost their culture as a result of that or sold into slavery or were harmed or you know mass genocide they're not going to see these people as saviors they're going to see them as people who have destroyed basically their self-concept and the diaspora is a very interesting place because so much of it has been removed that what is the diaspora and identity it's usually in close proximity to what white Americanism looks like, but that's a world that would otherwise see us not as a part of them. So, so it's complex. I love the conversation. Yeah, there's nuance to all of this, right? And again, what is right? What is wrong? Who decides that? And yeah. I love having these kind of it's these philosophical conversations. I think they're so fun. <laughs> Me too. And I, I have the book on my shelf. So at, after we're done recording, I'll grab it. <laughs> Just so um, in case you guys you know want the name of it. But like, I think it's called 2000 Seasons. Okay. Yeah. So, so folks, if you're interested, check the show notes because I'll have made Ryan give it to me. <laughs> so you can look it up. <laughs> I think the other way of looking at this, I mean, I, 
I think it probably does the film a bit of a disservice because I'm willfully overlooking the fact that there's a heavy religious element, (laughs) which is very obvious that we're in a church. But we did have that conversation about how this is a black community and they're finding ways to celebrate each other and their culture. So in a way, if we look at Hess as someone who has been living outside of that, him coming back into the fold there could be positive connotations of, oh, he's going back to his people. He's actually going back to his roots. Mm. Oh, I love that. I mean, you know what's funny, though? No matter what, it is still positive, though, because no matter the complexities behind Christianity, he's going into a church house with his own people. So there is a chance for community. There's a chance for healing. You know, Mm -hmm. everything that's bad, you know, is it's duality. There's a plus or a benefit as well. And he seemed happy with how things panned out, even though it led to his death. It seemed that he would prefer that than to be a victim to vampirism. He didn't want that for himself at all. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because as soon as we see him receive this blessing, we literally get to see him running through this field. His shirt is open. He's got this exuberant smile on his face like he's finally been released from his torment. Mm, Exactly. So he goes home and he's put up a giant cross in the living room and he wants ganja to come with him and she's like no (laughs) she's like i love her i don't know about this (laughs) so what's interesting is we we start to hear that that familiar chanting that we've been hearing throughout the film and we also hear a slowly building kind of echoing scream and the first time that i saw this i thought that this was ganja screaming After he dies, because, yeah, the shadow of the cross falls across him. He falls to the ground. He's dead. And then we see the ambulance come and the scream kind of tapers off. But seeming actually suggests that this is foreshadowing the reveal at the end that Richard is coming back, because that's actually his guttural scream of being reborn into a vampiric body. Mm. And as a fun production note, uh, this is Wayman. The guy who plays Luther and who also did the music. Yes. He recorded this for three days. That's how long it took him to work up the energy and get this right. Jesus. Man. Wow. That level of dedication. So much respect. So much. It's hardcore. He actually, um, Trace, you mentioned the music. Mm Mm-hmm. And apparently when the film basically got shelved and they, you know, kind of like burned all of the original prints and did the re-release uh he pressed to get this released as a soundtrack because he was so happy with how it had all right. turned out and they weren't interested in him doing that but it apparently got a vinyl release uh about five years ago oh yay vinyl the resurgence of vinyl is saving so many film scores <laughs> there we go yeah i need to pick that up because i love the sound score of this film so much yeah, apparently he he did a bunch of other things that I'm like, I'm not good with music, so I'm not yeah. very adept at talking about it. But apparently he used a lot of creative ways to get some of the sound mixes into this. So he found non-traditional, a.k.a. like African inspired ways of drawing in culture through the music that a lot of white people in Hollywood were like, wait, what? How? Um. <laughs> Okay, so Hess is now dead. Ganja is just in this house. The paramedics take uh, Hess's body away. And this is when Ganja spies a naked man crawling out of the pool and running towards the house. We also note that uh, Archie's body is 
on the grounds and we get this freeze frame as Richard jumps <laughs> over him nude and the movie ends with Ganja slowly smiling as Richard runs towards her. Did y'all think she was looking at the camera, like, like at the audience in this shot? Kind oh, of. You know what's funny? Now I gotta look back. I don't know, because I didn't think about that, but that would be iconic. <laughs> so, okay, this is my last little poll from Diawara and Klopman, but they but they say, Ganja is a contemporary black woman. She is tired of being subservient to the church and to black men. She's glad that Meta and Hess, the self-destructive artist and the bourgeois patriarch, are gone. It is mm. in this sense that we understand her cunning smile in the final frames. She's in command. Mm -hmm. The last image of her potential sexual pleasure and control comes as a surprise because the two major narrative threads have been woven from a male perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, I agree. I mean, look how quickly yeah. she got over her previous husband. So she ain't tripping over no man for one. <laughs> and, and secondly, I'd be smiling too. I mean, like, he looks good. Like, she got the house? Yeah, I got that. Oh, you're right. You're right. I <laughs> She's married. It's hers by law. Wait a minute. That she doesn't have to worry about Archie him. because Archie's dead, so he's not pushing back. He might, She might actually get an inheritance, too. Like, she probably got all his money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh. If not, she can just sell all of his priceless artwork. Woman on top, man. The only thing she has to worry about is that he does have that kid. So, a sequel potential, that kid's getting killed in France. Yes. <laughs> that kid dies on the boat journey back from France. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. You're right. Him coming home and knocking on the door like, what the hell is going on around here? Daddy? Daddy? <laughs> no. I hate to see her face when she opens the door and sees a kid sitting there. <laughs> oh, fuck. And then it becomes like a buddy comedy as they learn to love each other. <laughs> no, I, you know what? I'm okay with this. I, look, I'm going to start my change.org petition. I want this. I wonder if Spike Lee would be interested <laughs> in doing this. <laughs> So one final thing, I could not shake who I thought Marlene Clark looked like. And this was before you both told me that there was a Spike Lee remake. So I was fiction future casting. So I'm interested if you two have any idea of who you would like to see in this. I guess we have to overlook Spike Lee's film. But do you have any hypothetical cast you would love? I have one person in mind. I just love her, so I'm biased. But... I would love to see Tayana Taylor um, in the role of Ganja, personally. For Hess, mm, I need time to think about it. I might I might steal one of y'all answers. Who do y'all see? Well, Ryan, Ryan, where would we have known her from? I first got into her with Google Me Baby back in the day, but um, now she's like producing films. She um, got in the music industry for a bit of time, but then she jumped right back out because she wasn't having mm. it. She's, in, she's married to Iman Schubert who's um i don't know sports he does sports um i know i, I know him through her i'm ashamed to, I, i'm so ashamed to admit i know him through her but um okay. and she was in the fade music video with kanye west she was the one that was doing the long dance number at the beginning um that broke the internet when that first came out okay so i actually i thought about this too before i watched the remake um i didn't come up with hess i because I, I was clearly only focused on the woman, i was gonna so. say who cares about hess no shade. so <laughs> i have three options and they may be they may be really obvious but i don't okay. care um so i have for the a younger set i have kiki palmer Ooh. or maybe journey smollett but also okay for, i was thinking gabrielle union oh interesting i don't know, I, I feel like she has the um the attitude to pull off this character she definitely does. Uh -huh. She does. I could I could see that for her. <laughs> she would love it too. I think she would relish in that role. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. 
Okay, so I'm I'm hoping that my pick will blow the two of you away. I, I just felt like I saw a kind of uncanny resemblance, but also let's queer this shit up. I mean, Trace, you've already alluded to that yeah. a little bit, but I was thinking Dominic Jackson. <gasps> so she played Electra Abundance in Pose. She's a trans actress. Oh, oh my God. Okay, no, I, I'm so glad you said that because... <laughs> I was actually thinking, oh my god, the other one in Pose, because I think she... Oh, MJ Rodriguez you're talking about, or no? Oh my god, yes, 100% MJ Rodriguez, because she actually even looks like Marlene. She hmm. she kind of does. I'd be okay with any of them getting this role, because I'd want that opportunity and that representation. Right. And Dominique Jackson, she, she's been popping up, because, you know, she yeah. played um, Bloody Mary in American Horror Stories, and she did a great job with that oh. role. She killed Did not know that. Oh, interesting. Was that that most recent uh, New York season? It was the one before that. It's when they were dabbling. Remember, they were doing American Horror Stories. It was it was one of those oh, episodes. Hmm. Okay. So, um, and I didn't like the episode, but I loved her performance. I mean, that goes without saying. <laughs> right. <laughs> no shade. <laughs> That's fine. It's the That's typical fine. Ryan Murphy effect, right? Where you're exactly. just like, oh, I don't know about this product, but goddamn the people he gets to work with. It's yeah. just like he is so good at spotting talent. He is. I have to give. It, I have to give it to him. I'd be a hater if I didn't. <laughs> like it's because I mean, she looked great. I'm trying to find the uh, picture to send to y'all. Y'all can cut this out later, but I'm just sending it for y'all own edification. You have to see her as Bloody Mary. She looks so good. Oh yeah. Nice. Okay. But um. But yeah, so I think that is Ganja and Hess. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to lie. I'm really happy that we got through all that because I have not been more intimidated by a film on this podcast in a very long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's been a while since we've had to do one where it's like, okay, you got to sit with this. You got to do the work. You got to read a bunch of people. Analyze and give the it fuck a out of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sit in the bath, brush your teeth, give it a thing. <laughs> oh, no. Off. Stop. <laughs> okay. Well, before we announce we're covering next week, uh, Ryan, first of all, thank you so much for coming on to this. Um, where, where, where can people find you on social media? You can find me at Brother Ghoulish, um, mostly on TikTok, but I'm starting to come back around to Twitter. So at Brother Ghoulish on all things. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well if you want to get in touch with us you can reach us on twitter and instagram at horrorqueers uh, shoot us an email at horrorqueers at gmail.com find us on letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered go to our youtube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers as well as videos on our most anticipated films every month uh, if you want to chat with other listeners please join our facebook horror queers group if you have a moment please rate and review us on apple podcasts or spotify and if you want even more content please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horror queers uh sign up now and you can get over 233 hours of extra content our new episodes this month include a discussion on films with make or break endings the latest remake of children of the corn tabitha it's terrible (laughs) it's terribly funny is what it is no it is not (laughs) it's so funny (gasps) um we've also got uh the uh, episode of the new horror comedy renfield amazon prime's beyonce crazy fan show swarm and an audio commentary on house of a thousand corpses just in time for its 20th anniversary oh my god and speaking of shrek in 20 years apparently house of a thousand corpses is also 20 i think house of a thousand corpses came out the same year as shrek 2 so more shrek 2 connections (laughs) (laughs) joe god joe Mm -hmm. what are we talking about next week Okay, so it's technically the last episode of April, but we're celebrating Alien Day a little bit early. Oh my god, Trace, we're going to Prometheus. (laughs) 
this is a movie that I actually do really like. Um, I just don't really like rewatching it a lot. So I'm cautiously optimistic about next week. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about more queer representation that is not super great because these are not characters. <laughs> Every time I think about Prometheus, I think about the honest trailer where it's like, you know, Charlize Theron and an idiot woman who can mm-hmm. only run in straight lines. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes. We'll have plenty of talk about it. <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay, everyone. Well, until next week, we can cross out Ganja and Hess. Yes. Happy 50th, Ganja and Hess. And cross out horror queers. 